Good evening, fellow pilgrims, and welcome to Screwtape class tonight as we get ready for letter 30. And as usual, there's some music playing. Uh, there's a chance you might recognize this because we listened to this months ago in a different class. But I'm going to be quiet and let you listen for a minute and see if you can figure out what it is and if you've read the letter, why it might be relevant. Well, I could listen to that for a really long time, but we will stop for right now. Any Hoping guesses about what that was? There's a, a wonderful scriptural text that underlies that that you might have been able to recognize, which is from Revelation 21 about the new heaven and the new earth. And that anthem is the beautiful anthem written by uh, Bainton uh, to that text from Revelation 21. And it talks about the beautiful reality of the kingdom of heaven and the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth that will be the completion of God's plan of salvation. And when I send the link, I would encourage you to find the loudest audio device that you have in your place and turn it up full blast and sit down and either if you've got Apple TV or something, put it on a big screen or close your eyes and just listen because it is scriptural truth proclaimed with the added benefit of glorious music. And if you need a little dose of encouragement, uh, it will get you going. As one of our clergy has said, if that doesn't get your fire going, your wood is wet. So uh, as we begin tonight, uh, let's start with our scripture verse uh, from Ephesians. And before we do that, let me just open us up with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this chance to be able to gather together in your name. We thank you for this amazing book, The Screwtape Letters, and for the wisdom that is in it about how to seek after you and avoid the snares of the devil. Lord, we pray that you would be with us tonight, that you would use this material and the scripture that we will study to speak to our hearts in such a way that they would be fired up with your Holy Spirit, that we might follow you with all our heart. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd encourage you to uh, say with me this verse from Ephesians 6, 
that has been our theme verse as we have gone through the screw tape letters. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you may extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And again, we will see echoes of this verse in the letter tonight about ways that we can annoy the devil by doing just exactly what Paul says for us to do in that verse from Ephesians. So we will now turn to uh, walking through the PowerPoint. And for those of you who are listening and are new, I want to encourage you to go to the St. Philip's website, which you can find by Googling St. Philip's Church Charleston uh, on the internet. And if you go under uh, Learn and Grow, and then go down to the screw tape class under that tab, you can find the PowerPoint for tonight. And if you also, if you're new, I want to encourage you to, while you're at the St. Philip's website, send me an email. I'm right there on the website, Brian McGreevy, and I will get you uh, added to our distribution list for the summary email and other materials that go out uh, each week. I would also encourage you, if you're old or new, to please share this class with anybody that you feel might be interested. Um, it has been amazing to me to see the way that the Lord has used the scripture that we've talked about in Lewis's book here, um, as other people have found out about this class, uh, to really be an encouragement to them in their spiritual life. So I would uh, be delighted for you to share it with anyone uh, that you feel might be interested. So let's turn to uh, this letter 30. And as usual, uh, we will begin by just rehearsing the reasons that we are studying this particular book and why I am still, even at letter 30, really enthusiastic about this book. The first is that it is the greatest resource outside of scripture that I've encountered to help us understand the battle in which we find ourselves. We are in a battle where Satan is working against the people of God. And if we don't acknowledge that we have an active enemy, we become easy prey. So this is a great book to understand the battle. Secondly, it is a great book about learning to think Christianly and develop a Christian worldview. One of the issues in our culture is we're not very good at thinking. And so thinking Christianly, thinking thoughtfully, thinking uh, from a Christian worldview is so very important. 
Thirdly, lessons on the psychology of temptation. When you understand what Satan's strategy is for getting at Christians and undermining their faith, you can be much more ready uh, to withstand his attacks. Fourth, lessons on habits to cultivate that deepen our faith in Christ. We've talked so much about habits in this book and referenced Justin Early's book, The Common Rule About Habits. And the idea of that is that there are certain habits and ways of looking at reality that if they become part of our daily lives, they will not only deepen our faith in Christ, but they will annoy the heck out of the devil because we will be leading a life that is not susceptible to his lies. And lastly, lessons on living a boldly Christian life. We want to live a life that matters for the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that we need to be famous or that there will be a long obituary written about us when our days are over. But what it means is that we have tried to give ourselves and the gifts that we've been given by God over to the work of the gospel in such a way that God uses us in whatever corner of the world we find ourselves to make a difference for him and his kingdom. So as we talk about habits, one of the things that uh, most of us learned when we were small children about habits is that you have to repeat them uh, over and over and over again before they become part of your routine and truly become habits and not just fads. So for that reason, we're doing some repetition at the beginning of each class to go back over the habits from the letters that we have done just recently. So tonight, we're going to start our review with letter 26, uh, that great uh, letter about uh, this whole idea of unselfishness uh, that Lewis, through Screwtape's mouth, says is a triumph of Hell's philological department to substitute unselfishness, a negative, for the proactive love that is commanded in Scripture. So the first habit to annoy the devil from letter 26, be proactive and positive virtue and do not define your faith in terms of what you don't do. This is so very important because many of us as Christians have uh, fallen into the trap of thinking that if we don't do certain things that we think of as bad, or even that scripture defines as bad, that somehow that's enough to be obedient to God. And we miss all of those things that we as Anglicans call sins of omission. Sins of commission are those things that we do that are bad and sometimes we start feeling virtuous when we haven't done those things. But the sense of omission, the things that we've neglected to do at all, like love our neighbors as ourselves, to love our families, to practice giving sacrificially, to stand up for justice, all of those kinds of things are equally, if not more, important. And so as Christians, we need to recover this idea of being proactive and living out our faith. The second habit is be wary of defining selfishness on your own terms, judging the selfishness of others, but turning a blind eye toward your own. I know I am all too prone to this, and I suspect many of you are as well, that we think we have uh, learned to be unselfish 
And it's just all those other people out there that need to get a clue. But one of the things that scripture tells us is that uh, why do we seek to remove the speck in our brother's eye when there is a plank in our own eye? Uh, that's in Matthew 7 when Jesus is talking about not judging others. And we would do well to heed those words. Thirdly, practice clear and honest communication, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is part of that uh, fabulous fourth chapter of Ephesians that if you haven't read in a while, I would commend to you to go do that. Uh, but speaking the truth in love is something we desperately need in our culture. As we've said many times before, uh, we often hear people speaking truth, we often hear people speaking love, but we rarely have the two together. We have truth that's spoken with judgment and harshness and hatred sometimes, or love that is so sloppy that it excuses all manner of behavior that it's not really loving to excuse. Fourthly, beware accumulating judges not judges, grudges. Judges might be a bad thing to accumulate too, but grudges are uh, the habit we want to work on. Not accumulating those, keeping short accounts. And the reason for that is that grudges lead to bitterness, and bitterness often leads to hatred, and it leads to sin. We need to not get all caught up in a victim mentality of thinking that other people have done things to us and therefore we can hold a grudge against them, especially in the household of faith, because we are reminded in Scripture over and over again that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Fifthly, practice serving in humble, loving charity without expectation of notice or reward. Remember in Matthew 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about prayer and fasting and giving to the needy, and he says that you need to do these things in secret, i.e. do them in a way that you are not doing them for the approval of other people. And we would do well to notice also that Jesus says, not if you do these things, but when you do them. Serving is not an optional activity for the Christian. Then from letter 27, uh, the first habit to annoy the devil is to practice an open and honest prayer life that addresses the real issues in your life. And when I think of that letter, I always think of that beautiful parable that Jesus tells about the tax collector and the Pharisee. And Jesus says the tax collector goes in to the temple to pray and he stands and he says, Oh God, I thank thee that I am not like other men. And then he goes on to recount his virtues and says, And I thank thee that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Uh, and he doesn't actually ever even pray. He just makes statements about how great he is. And that is contrasted with the tax collector who falls on his knees and will not even look up to the Lord and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is a reminder to us that God sees all. He knows our hearts. And we need to be open and honest with him, 
not trying to impress people by how we sound in our prayers, but pouring out our hearts before him. That's one of the beautiful things that we see in the Psalms. You see rapturous passages of great beauty in the Psalms, praising God, but you also see every bit of what David goes through, and some of it is not very attractive, but he's pouring it all out and laying it before the Lord, and we are to do the same. The second habit is to contract what Screwtape calls the terrible habit of obedience. Obedience is underrated in our culture. We think that uh, rebellion somehow is more cool than obedience is, and that obedience is for people that can't think for themselves. But obedience to God is the opposite. It is uh, the smartest, wisest thing we can do, and in some ways the most self-serving, because when we are obedient to God, we're doing what's best for us. But the problem is that Satan has planted in our minds that obedience is a terrible habit, something to be avoided. But when we do practice obedience to God in our prayer life and in all of our life, um, we are led more and more into the image of Christ, the one who led a life of perfect obedience, uh, the fruit of which was the salvation of the world. Thirdly, cultivate an eternal perspective and remember that God sees everything in his unbounded now. We, or at least I, am not always a very patient person. We want what we want when we want it, which is usually right now or five minutes ago. And we need to remember, particularly when we pray, that God is seeing all of eternity. He is outside of time. Uh, he is in time and outside of time. He intervenes in our time, but he is above it because he is the creator of time. So we don't need to try to put God on our timetable and get impatient with him. And part of the other reason that this is so important about cultivating an eternal perspective is a lot of what we worry about really doesn't make a bit of difference when you put it in the concept of eternity. I've talked in previous classes about my friend in college that used to say a good lens to look at things through is what will it matter in a hundred years anyway. And it's a great reminder that the only things that are eternal are the things of the kingdom of God and the people that are made in his image. Fourthly, avoid embracing the fallacies of the historical point of view and deconstructionism. And this is the idea that everything from the past is just to be thrown out because it's old and out of date. And deconstructionism is, of course, the idea that you can't look at any writing from the past about what might be true or applicable or noble uh, that we could learn from, but you have to find ways to discredit it or think about why um, it doesn't apply anymore because we are so much wiser and more virtuous than those people were. Now that is not to say that everything in the past was great. There's certainly plenty of things in the past that were awful and they were usually regarded as awful in those times as well, although not always. But we are uh, all too prone to throw out the baby with the bathwater that uh, we say because some things in the past were not great, then everything that was done in the past is not worth learning from. And we forget 
that they were people who were earnestly seeking after Christ in previous ages, people who were seeking to follow uh, the will of God, people who were writing about what is true and beautiful and good. And when we throw all of those things out, we impoverish ourselves. And as the old proverb says, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And then fifthly, seek proactively to learn from the wisdom of the past, especially Christian wisdom. There are so many saints of the church who have gone on before, and I don't just mean people who have been canonized by the Catholic Church, but people who are the great leaders of faith in different ages, whether missionaries or reformers or ministers or preachers or whomever they might have been, who set their hearts on the kingdom of heaven and who loved the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we have the great blessing of so many writings from these people that we can learn from. And we need to embrace and seek after wisdom. We live in a culture that uh, is a place where wisdom is in short supply because we're so enamored of whatever we think is the latest thing. Uh, but wisdom comes from considering and looking at how things happened in the past, what people learned from them, how they understood the scriptures, all of those kinds of things. So when we seek to proactively learn from the wisdom of the past, we can grow in our spiritual life and annoy the devil even more. So then from letter 28, the first habit, daily increase in conscience dependence upon God rather than on worldly hopes. We need to put our trust in God, to have him be our treasure and not the things of this world. And we need to depend on him and not rely on our earthly security. Secondly, we need to fight against darkness in and resentment at our situation in life. Drabness and darkness and uh, discouragement are things that are the enemies of living a life that is boldly Christian. And they're usually a sign that we have let the muscle of faith, uh, if you will, get flabby because we failed to exercise it. When we don't ever take any risks for God, our faith grows cold and we don't see the power of the Holy Spirit at work. So we need to be living in such a way that we are stretched, uh, that our muscles don't atrophy because we are seeking after God in every part of our lives. Thirdly, be on guard against having your heart be too knitted to this world instead of your true homeland. This is the area that we struggle with in our affluent culture. Many of us, if somebody says, you're rich, our first reaction is to say, no, I'm not. I struggle to pay my bills. I don't have millions of dollars in the bank. But what we forget is that compared to the vast majority of the world, and certainly to ages that have gone before, we are rich beyond imagining. 
And all too often we put our trust in our riches and our comfort and our insurance policy rather than in God. And the result of that is that we become knitted to this world. And certainly there is joy and beauty and love and so much that is wonderful in this world. But the kingdom of heaven is even much more wonderful than we can imagine, uh, which is one of the reasons you should listen to that music we played at the beginning. It will help fire up your heart about that. But the problem is if we get too knitted to this world, uh, we forget that we are supposed to be in the world, but not of it. The next habit, make time for music and poetry and literature that can point you toward unseen realities in the kingdom of God. Screwtape talks about how frustrating it is that one encounter with something truly beautiful, whether it's a flower or the song of a bird or a couplet in poetry or a book that captures something incredible, uh, that can sweep away all of Satan's work by pointing us to the fact that there's more than just the physical reality of this earth to life and the kingdom of God. So we need to invest in those things and make time for them because when we have music and poetry and literature in our lives, they can help point us toward the kingdom of heaven. Fifth, be aware, beware of the illusion that politics or policies or human any human progress can make heaven on earth. Certainly, we are to stand up for justice, but we need to remember that the only time that the earth is going to be perfect is when the new heaven and new earth come down uh, with Jesus's return. It is not going to happen through our own efforts. Uh, and the problem is when we believe we can create heaven on earth, sometimes we get so distracted by wanting to do that that we leave aside worshiping God and keeping our hearts focused on the things of his kingdom. And then sixthly, cultivate an understanding of safety that has more to do with being in the will of God than with your own personal comfort. All too often, we as Christians have bought into the wrong idea that's not found in scripture anywhere, that safety, our physical safety, is the ultimate good and that we need uh, constantly to be praying to God to keep us safe. But the problem with that is sometimes being safe means that you're out of the will of God. What if Jesus had decided to be safe and had refused to go to the cross for us? What if the disciples had decided to be safe and locked themselves in the upper room and never came out? No, 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 friends. Our safety is in the fact that we are bought with a price and we belong to Christ. And whether our lives are on this earth or eternally with him in heaven, we are his. And then from letter 29 last week, uh, that great letter about the danger of hatred Firstly, be on guard against developing any type of hatred, including hatred on behalf of others. Hatred is insidious. It is something that takes root in our hearts, and when it does, all manner of evil pours out of it. So as Christians, we have to be very careful to root out hatred and to do what Jesus said, to seek to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Secondly, be wary of unresolved fear and shame and how they can lead to hatred. 
when we have fear and shame in our lives, so often we can try to get rid of them by projecting them as hatred onto other people that we blame for where we are. And that, my friends, is not the way of the Christian path. We are to take fear and shame and confess them, to repent of them, and to ask that Christ would fill us with his peace. Thirdly, be prayerfully alert to the forces of good and evil at work in your life and in the world rather than being ignorant. Before you get involved in something or supporting something, check it out and see what its roots are and see if it's appropriate for you as a Christian to be involved with it. All too often, we just think everything's good. Um, they look like they're working for a good cause, so we're going to embrace this thing or that thing. And sometimes we should, but only after we look and investigate and try to discern whether something is working for the kingdom of God or against it. We are all too prone to call evil good. Fourthly, understand and practice the true virtue of courage. Lewis has this great line in Screwtape that courage is the greatest of all the virtues and that it is the form of every virtue at the testing point. That you can have in your head all manner of virtues, but unless you have the courage to let that virtue, virtue issue forth from feelings into action, then you are ineffective for the gospel and the kingdom. So it is a great reminder that we are to practice that virtue of courage, to stand up, to stand against, to stand firm. Fifthly, understand despair as a serious sin and avoid being seduced by it. There are plenty of things that can lead us to despair if we focus on them. But for Christians, we must keep in mind always the hope of the gospel, the beauty of the kingdom of God, and as such, we can never give in to despair. Fifthly, live in confidence that your ultimate safety is in Christ alone, not in building a foolproof network of precautions. Now, certainly, you don't want to be foolhardy. But precautions, we can become obsessive. Uh, if you've ever seen the TV show Monk, uh, it's a great example of somebody who is obsessive about precautions. And the result of that is we think our safety depends on our own efforts. And we need to be reminded, as we said in the previous letter, about the fact that our safety is truly only in Christ alone. So that brings us to letter 30. Uh, get your books out, get your pens, your highlighters, whatever you like, and uh, get ready uh, for some more wisdom uh, coming from this letter. My dear Wormwood, I sometimes wonder whether you think you have been sent into the world for your own amusement. I gather, not from your miserably inadequate report, but from that of the infernal police, that the patient's behavior during the first raid has been the worst possible. He has been very frightened and thinks himself a great coward and therefore feels no pride. But he has done everything his duty demanded and perhaps a bit more. Against this disaster, 
all you can produce on the credit side is a burst of ill temper with a dog that tripped him up, some excessive cigarette smoking, and the forgetting of a prayer. What is the use of whining to me about your difficulties? If you are proceeding on the enemy's idea of justice and suggesting that your opportunities and intentions should be taken into account, then I am not sure that a charge of heresy does not lie against you. At any rate, you will soon find that the justice of hell is purely realistic and concerned only with results. Bring us back food or be food yourself. The only constructive passage in your letter is where you say you still expect good results from the patient's fatigue. That is well enough, but it won't fall into your hands. Fatigue can produce extreme, extreme gentleness and quiet of mind and even something like vision. If you have often seen men led by it into anger, malice, and impatience, that is because those men have had effective tempters. The paradoxical thing is that moderate fatigue is a better soil for peevishness than absolute exhaustion. This depends partly on physical causes, but partly on something else. It is not fatigue simply as such that produces anger, but unexpected demands on a man already tired. Whatever men expect, they soon come to think they have the right to. The sense of disappointment can, with very little skill on our part, be turned to a sense of injury. It is after men have given in to the irremediable, after they have, been dis after they have despaired of relief and ceased to think even a half hour ahead that the dangers of humbled and gentle weariness begin. To produce the best results from the patient's fatigue, therefore, you must feed him with false hopes. Put into his mind plausible reasons for believing that the air raid will not be repeated. Keep him comforting himself with the thought of how much he will enjoy his bed next night. Exaggerate the weariness by making him think it will soon be over, for men usually feel that a strain could have been endured no longer at the very moment when it is ending, or when they think it is ending. In this, as in the problem of cowardice, the thing to avoid is the total commitment. Whatever he says, let his inner resolution be not to bear whatever comes to him, but to bear it for a reasonable period. And let the reasonable period be shorter than the trial is likely to last. It need not be much shorter, in attacks on patience, chastity, and fortitude, the fun is to make the man yield just when, had he but known it, relief was almost in sight. I do not know whether he is more likely to meet the girl under conditions of strain or not. 
If he does, make full use of the fact that up to a certain point, fatigue makes women talk more and men talk less. Much secret resentment, even between lovers, can be raised from this. Probably the scenes he is now witnessing will not provide material for an intellectual attack on his faith. Your previous failures have put that out of your power. But there's a sort of attack on the emotions which can still be tried. It turns on making him feel when he first sees human remains plastered on a wall. That this is what the world is really like and that all his religion has been only a fantasy. You will notice that we've got them completely fogged about the meaning of the world, the word real. They tell each other of some great spiritual experience. All that really happened was that you heard some music in a lighted building. Here, real means bare physical facts, separated from the other elements in the experience they actually had. On the other hand, they will also say, it's all very well discussing that high dive as you sit here in an armchair, but wait till you get up there and see what it's really like. Here, real is used in the opposite sense to mean not the physical facts, which they know already while discussing the matter in armchairs, but the emotional effect those facts will have on a human consciousness. Either application of the word could be defended, but our business is to keep the, the two going at once so that the emotional value of the word real can be placed now on one side of the account, now on the other, as it happens to suit us. The general rule, which we have now pretty well established among them, is that in all experiences, which can make them happier or better, only the physical facts are real, while the spiritual elements are subjective. In all experiences which can discourage or corrupt them, the spiritual elements are the main reality, and to ignore them is to be an escapist. Thus, in birth, the blood and pain are real. The rejoicing, a mere subjective point of view. In death, the terror and ugliness reveal what death really means. The hatefulness of a hated person is real. In hatred, you see men as they are. You are disillusioned. But the loveliness of a loved person is merely a subjective haze, concealing a real core of sexual appetite or economic association. Wars and poverty are really horrible. Peace and plenty are mere physical facts about which men happen to have certain sentiments. The creatures are always accusing one another of wanting to eat the cake and have it. But thanks to our labors, they are more often in the predicament of paying for the cake and not eating it. Your patient, properly handled, will have no difficulty in regarding his emotion at the sight of human entrails as a revelation of reality and his emotion at the sight of happy children or fair weather 
as mere sentiment. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, there's lots of great stuff in here, so we're going to jump in and run through some of these habits. Uh, but it is a letter that brings up this very important point of what is real with a capital R, something we as Christians need deeply to think about because we've bought into what our culture says instead of what the, the Gospels teach us. So the first habit to annoy the devil from letter 30, choose to obediently do what you know is right, even when you are afraid. Proactively and obediently do what you know is right. Act, don't just feel, even if you're afraid. And from God's word from James 1, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Then from 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And then from Joshua, that great verse we saw before about fear, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. My friends, so often fear stops us from doing what we know is right, from reaching out across lines of race or economic division, from speaking up when the truth needs to be spoken and no one's saying it, from loving sacrificially, all of these things. And we need to get beyond that because it will not only annoy the devil, but it is the command of scripture. The second habit, practice perseverance, especially when you are fatigued and be wary of false hopes of comfort. This is something we desperately need to hear in our culture. The idea of perseverance or what some people call grit or endurance used to characterize many people in our culture. But more and more as we bought into the idea that our feelings are everything, uh, perseverance is looked down on. We feel like we should only do things when they're convenient and when we feel like it, because otherwise we're not being authentic. But listen to what scripture says. First from Hebrews 10, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And then from Galatians 6, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And then 1 John 2, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And then Jesus in that great parable of the rich fool. Then the rich fool said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night 
your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with everyone who stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And then from Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This idea of perseverance is so important, and it's a scriptural theme all the way through the Bible, and one that is, I think, one of the besetting sins of our culture that we do not persevere. And I want to recommend to you, if you haven't read it, Lewis's book, The Silver Chair and the Chronicles of Narnia. This is one of the greatest books about the value of perseverance and how comfort is a danger and a seduction uh, when we are needing to persevere. In that story, the children are trying to find a lost prince and following uh, these signs given them by Aslan. And they're told to repeat these signs every day. Uh, and it is much like Deuteronomy 6 about repeating uh, the word of God. But they, they get slack about that because it's not convenient or comfortable. And then the journey becomes hard and they get tired and cold. And then they hear about this castle of giants uh, where there's food and feather beds and big fires and all of that. And their counselor tells them, don't do that. We need to keep going. But they get so enamored of the idea of comfort that they are snared and they go uh, and they give up the quest and go into this castle where they learn that they are going to be put to death and eaten by the giants. And this is Lewis's way of telling us allegorically what the scriptures say that we need to learn to persevere. The third habit, do not let horror of the evil that men can do cause you to doubt your faith or God's goodness. And we live in an age where the horror that men can do is right in front of us all the time. I would suggest that men really are not doing more horror than they used to, but now because of technology, uh, it comes right into our living room or our kitchen over a screen from every far corner of the world. So we know about all of these horrors. And sometimes our reaction to that is despair, to doubt God's goodness, to believe that our faith can't possibly be true. And that's exactly what Satan wants to have happen. He wants us to watch the news all the time so that we can see all of the bad things that are going on in the world and that that will cause us to lose hope, to become discouraged, and to hole up and just hope that someday it's all over. That is not the Christian way. It is not the way Jesus lived his life, and it is not how the scriptures tell us to live. So, uh, there are so many beautiful examples. The story of Joseph in Genesis is one of the great stories of maintaining hopefulness and joy even in the kingdom of God in the face of not only the horror that evil men do, but being the one to whom that horror is done. Listen to Joseph. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. 
Joseph refused to succumb to believing that God was bad or the author of evil, even in the face of the horrors that befell him, and we need to follow his good example. And then this beautiful passage from Romans chapter 8. If you've never read all of Romans chapter 8 from beginning to end, uh, I would encourage you to do that. And if you've got time, read the whole epistle of the Romans. It's a beautiful argument that starts in chapter 1 and goes all the way through the book. But in Romans 8, this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And this is a reminder that the creation is indeed groaning, and there is evil and horror and death and pain and suffering, but that is not the end of the story. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me, in me, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is a great reminder to us in, as Christians that Jesus told us there will be tribulation, but we are not to fear because he has overcome the world. Goodness and righteousness and virtue, because that is who Jesus is, his goodness has already triumphed. The, the battle may still be going on, but the war has been won on the cross. Fourthly, embrace a scriptural understanding of what is real that encompasses spiritual, physical, and emotional reality. My friends, this is so important. We've been sold a bill of goods by our culture that tells us that rational things, things that we can touch, that we can see what often is referred to as scientific, that that's the only reality that there is. But the scriptures tell us a different story, that the spiritual reality is even more real with a capital R than things that we can touch or experience with our senses, and that what we can tell about reality deep within our souls, that longing for our homeland that Lewis talks about, that stab of joy from that beautiful sunset or the gorgeous music that brings tears to our eyes, those things point to reality that is beyond what we might term uh, merely factual. So listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then that great passage from Revelation 21, the culmination of the word of God. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. My friends, that is reality. That is what we are destined for. That is the kingdom that Jesus has transferred to us from the result of his crucifixion and resurrection as the Messiah, that great work by Handel says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It is so important that we understand that that is the reality, that it is not just what we see with our eyes. It reminds me of that old children's story, The Velveteen Rabbit, that I remember studying as a nine-year-old at Camp St. Christopher. And that Velveteen Rabbit story is about how that old, shabby, dirty bunny with his fur loved off and his little eye dangling out is more real because he has been loved than any bright, shiny, new bunny. And that is a, a great analogy for what Jesus' love does to transform us and make us creatures made and destined to the reality of that new heaven and new earth. And then fifthly, focus on spiritual realities that lead to joy and growth and refuse to embrace discouragement. My friends, we so often forget that we can choose where we t focus our minds. We are commanded over and over again in scripture to focus our minds in certain places, but so often we don't do that. And we just think that our minds are a bucket for whatever the world wants to pour into them. And the result of that is that we become so discouraged by all of what is discouraging out there that we lose our hope. And my friends, the Christian witness goes down the drain when Christians lose hope. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and we have hope that we can offer to this broken world. Listen to these words from Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We have been raised with Christ, so let us set our minds on the things of his kingdom. And of course, there's that beautiful verse from Philippians about 
whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is noble, what is worthy of praise, all of these things, those are what we are to set our minds on. And then from James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. It is a reminder that even when we are suffering, we are to count it as joy, because we are being honed to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. And then lastly, this beautiful passage at the end of Romans. May the God of hope, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. My friends, hope is the one of the core things of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the hope that we who were dead in our sins and our trespasses, we who could do nothing because we were dead, we were loved while we were yet sinners by Christ. And as that beautiful conjunction in the middle of uh, Ephesians says, but God, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God, God raised us with Christ. And therefore, of all those on earth, we should be the most hopeful. So my friends, in this 30th letter, there is much to consider and chew on. And I want to just close uh, reading a little excerpt of something that Lewis wrote about how important it is that when we feel that we're living in evil days, that we not give in to despair. So listen to these words. In one way, we think a great two, and what Lewis is talking about here is the fear of the atomic bomb being dropped. And he says, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in such an age? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century, when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age, when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us are going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of a painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. 
This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb or whatever else, let that bomb, when it comes to find us, doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to over, with our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. My friends, there is a great truth here that we are not designed to live in fear. We know that our time on this earth is limited. We are all mortal. And so, therefore, we must live knowing that our life is hidden with Christ and God. And I want to just close with a little plug for a movie uh, that is a movie called A Hidden Life by Terrence Malick. And it is uh, drawn from this idea that our life is hid with Christ and God. It's a true story from World War II, but it is full of beauty and hope. So let's close with that line that uh, we close with each time from Screwtape Letter 8 about the terrible habit of obedience. Our cause is never more in danger, Wormwood, than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do the enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are real and that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, despising its shame, and you are now seated on the right hand of God and that you will return and you will bring that new heaven and the new earth, the ultimate reality of the kingdom of God to surround us and to show that our life hidden with you is the real life. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with hope and with joy and that you would give us courage to live out our faith in the midst of a perishing world that we may hold out the gospel of life to those who need it. Lord, we thank you for your love and mercy and grace and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Remember to listen to that beautiful music, I Saw a New Heaven, and I look forward to being with you again next week. God bless you.